The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com slash support. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it's currently the first day of December 2012. So welcome to December, all of you stateside where it's still merely the evening of the 30th of November. But wherever you are, whenever you are, however you're listening to me right now, thank you for tuning in for another edition of Corbett Report Radio, a very special edition where I'd like to introduce to all of you a brand new addition to your info arsenal. So last night at the end of the broadcast, you might have caught that I promised something special for subscribers to the Corbett Report website, and I'm here to deliver today. I'd like to introduce to you the holiday DVD pack from CorbettReport.com. It includes the brand new multi-pack DVD as well as the last word DVD. And these are two DVDs, uh, DVD sets. One is four DVDs in one, the other is one DVD. So let me explain to you what this is all about. Basically, the Corbett Report is releasing for the holiday special. This is only for December. For subscribers of the Corbett Report, you can get this multi-pack DVD, which is the 2009 video archive, the 2010 video archive, the Data DVD Volume 1, and the Data DVD Volume 2. All four of those discs, plus the Last Word DVD, which is all five DVDs that the Corbett Report puts out. You can get all of that for 7,500 Japanese yen. That is roughly equivalent to 91 American dollars at today's exchange rates, but of course that fluctuates from day to day depending how much toilet paper the Federal Reserve is printing out on any given day. But it's around $91, and that is a significant saving from the regular retail price, so for subscribers to the Corbett Report, you're going to find a link to buy this in tomorrow's subscriber newsletter. So if you are not subscribed to the Corbett Report yet, I suggest you do so, so you can get your hands on these. Of course, these are all five DVDs that the Corbett Report puts out, and uh, and they contain, well, basically everything that the Corbett Report put out between 2007 and 2009, as well as some selected video highlights from 2009 and 2010. So the exact details of what's in here and uh, what you'd be getting for this will be available on the website as of tomorrow, Because not only will it be available to subscribers, it will also be available to everyone else. You don't have to be a subscriber to get these. For subscribers, it's going to be 7,500 Japanese yen. Again, that's about 91 American dollars. For non-subscribers, it's going to be 10,000 Japanese yen, which is about $121. So about $30 more. It's still about a 30% saving from regular price. And once again, this is only for December. This is only for the holiday season. So if you want to get this, and if you want to get this for someone for a Christmas present, uh, I suggest you get your orders in in the next uh, few days, and I can almost guarantee that they'll arrive there on time. 
And uh, if you wait, you might lose the chance. So try to get your orders in this weekend. Once again, all the details of this, what's inside, will be on the website as of tomorrow. So check CorbettReport.com slash support for more details on that. But tonight on the radio program, what I want to do is highlight some of this work. So we're going to actually take a peek into some of the DVDs here to see some of the content. And of course, I'd like to stress up front once again that your monetary support is greatly appreciated for independent alternative media, but it is not strictly necessary. Every single one of these videos and reports and articles, all of it is freely available from my website, CorbettReport.com. You can go there today, download it completely for free at your heart's content. Absolutely no obligation required. It is 100% free and commercial-free media available to you because of the subscribers who really do make this broadcast possible. But of course, if you want to get an actual, physical, tangible copy that you can put your hands on and you are perfectly free to make copies of and distribute to others then by all means, these DVDs are a great way to do that. And of course, you support this alternative media at the same time. It's win-win for everybody. So let's take a short break. When we come back, we're going to listen to one of the videos off of one of the DVDs here, and I'll be back later on to describe what it is that we're uh, listening to today. So stay tuned right there. We'll be right back. Those who have studied history know that nothing invigorates and empowers an authoritarian regime more than a spectacular act of violence, some sudden and senseless loss of life that allows the autocrat to stand on the smoking rubble and identify himself as the hero. It's at moments like this that the public, still in shock from the horror of the tragedy that has just unfolded before them, can be led into the most ruthless despotism, despotism that now bears the mantle of security. Acts of terror and violence never benefit the average man or woman. They only ever benefit those in positions of power. This is why Nero fiddled while Rome burned. It gave him a chance to throw out the Christians to the lions and rebuild the capital of the Roman Empire in his own image. This is why Hearst and the warmongers of the emerging American Empire were delighted by the destruction of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898. It gave them the excuse they needed to rouse the public into supporting the Spanish-American War. This is why Israel attacked the USS Liberty in 1967 during the Six-Day War, strafing and torpedoing it relentlessly for hours in a vain attempt to send it to the bottom. The Israelis believed that the loss of the Liberty could be blamed on Egypt and draw the Americans into war. This is why there are hundreds of documented examples of government staging attacks in order to blame them on their political enemies. In every civilization, in every culture, in every historical period, authoritarians have known that spectacular acts of violence help to further consolidate their own power and control. And sadly, throughout history, there have been all too many willing to allow attacks to occur, to pretend that attacks have occurred, or even to attack their own population in order to further their political agenda. To think that such staged provocations and false flag attacks no longer occur would be as unrealistic as believing that human nature itself has changed, that powerful people no longer seek to increase their power, that influence is never used for deceit or manipulation, that lies are no longer told to satisfy greed or slake the thirst for control. It is to believe that our society is immune from those things that we have seen in every other society, in every other era. In short, it's a dangerous delusion. The people are once again learning the power of this delusion. They are learning the extent to which they have been lied to. 
They are once again studying their history. The Russians are learning how the FSB was caught planting bombs in Moscow in 1999 during a terror scare that swept Putin into power and stirred the public into supporting the Second Chechen War. They are learning how their autocratic ex-president came to power campaigning on the graves of those his old FSB cronies had killed. The Israelis are learning how Mossad has been caught time and again posing as the very Muslim terrorists they claim to be opposing. They are learning how Israel uses the specter of terror to further extend their blank check drawn on American funds to expand their police state at home and maintain their hardline stance, the world's sixth largest nuclear superpower supposedly threatened by the possibility that one of their neighbors may one day obtain a single nuclear weapon. The British are learning how their SAS officers were caught dressing up as Arabs in Iraq, driving around with trucks full of munitions, shooting at police to stir up ethnic tensions and ensure that permanent bases could be built in the region. They are learning how Haruna Swat, the supposed mastermind behind the 7-7 bombings, was working for British intelligence. They are learning how British military intelligence took part in IRA bombings. The Indians are learning how the Mumbai attack was helped by a U.S. agent who is cooperating with investigators so that he won't face questioning by foreign authorities. The Canadians are learning how their own provincial police dressed up as protesters in 2007 and threatened violence against other police in order to force a crackdown on peaceful protests. And the Americans. The Americans are learning that there were multiple bombs found, dismantled, and taken out of the Alfred P. Murrah building on April 19, 1995. They are learning that Timothy McVeigh had written a letter to his sister in which he claimed to be in the special forces for the U.S. Army. They are learning the bombing was being directed by FBI informants just as the 1993 World Trade Center bombing was. They are learning about 9-11 and the Gulf of Tonkin and Operation Northwoods and their own Army counterinsurgency manuals that teach officers how to commit false flag attacks to blame on their enemies. In short... The people are learning the truth. And now we see the same build-up to a false flag event taking place that we saw in 1995. At that time, the U.S. had a corporate media desperate to fling mud at anyone concerned by the actions of their government, and it had a government that was desperately unpopular. Today, we see the exact same factors at play. If anything, the situation today is worse than it was in the run-up to the Oklahoma City bombing, with media consolidation meaning that groups of concerned citizens like the Oath Keepers are being attacked by the controlled minions on both the left and the right. And now it is not just the militia that is being demonized by the establishment. It is veterans and gun owners, third-party supporters and libertarians, anti-war protesters and human rights campaigners, people who are upset with a government giving trillions to the banks that have engineered our current financial crisis. In short, everyone is now a potential terrorist according to the governmental and media agencies that deign to limit our range of acceptable opinion and control dissent. Even the word terrorist means something more than it did back in 1995, now after the false flag attack of 2001 allowed the passage of the Patriot Act, after the boogeyman of al-Qaeda gave the NSA the opportunity to announce that they were collecting everyone's emails and everyone's telephone calls, after the former White House press secretary came out and admitted that the Bush administration had made up terror threats in order to scare the people into supporting the government, now we know what the real definition of terrorism is. It is governments scaring their own populations into line. But there is something else that's different now from what it was in 1995. The people are learning something else about terrorism. 
They are not terrorists for speaking out against their government. They are not terrorists for wanting the government to stop selling their children into servitude to pay bankers their bonuses. They are not terrorists for pointing out that the FBI and the CIA and Mossad and MI6 are behind every major international terrorist event. The people are not terrorists because they do not want to see more death. They do not want more destruction. The spilling of the blood of their fellow citizens is not in their interests. Death and destruction only ever serve the governmental and financial and industrial interests who always grow in power and wealth in the wake of every tragedy. Time and again, the people pay with their lives, and the governments and the banks and the war machine only grows and prospers. The people do not want terrorism because it does not benefit them. It only benefits the existing power structure. And this time, if there is another staged event to blame on the government's enemy of the day, the people will know who to blame. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. All right, welcome back. Once again, you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. My name is James Corbett. I'm from CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. And I'm your host and guide here on this hour of broadcast every Monday to Friday night on Republic Broadcasting at 9 p.m. Central. And what you were just listening to right there was an excerpt. Actually, in fact, it was the entire video called When False Flags Don't Fly. And that was originally released way back in April of 2010. April 19th of 2010, to be exact, and that was my summary of, well, uh, basically the the idea that false flags and the ability for the government to commit false flags successfully is starting to come undone as people start to become aware of the idea of false flag terrorism, which I posit in and of itself is a victory of sorts. Once again, that is available uh, for free on YouTube and from my website, CorbettReport.com. I'll put the link in the show notes for tonight's episode so you can go and uh, watch it and download it for yourself. It's, of course, completely free, like every other piece of media that I put out. But it is also available as part of the 2010 Video Archive DVD, which is included here in this DVD multipack. It is going to be available for sale tomorrow from my website, CorbettReport.com, and details of that will be on CorbettReport.com slash support from tomorrow. Once again, this is all five of my currently released DVDs together for the first time. Subscribers to the Corbett Report, people who subscribe for at least 100 Japanese yen a month, will be able to get a significant discount. It will be 7,500 Japanese yen for all five DVDs. If you're not a subscriber, you don't have to become one. You can still get the multi-pack in the last word DVD for 10,000 Japanese yen. So once again, details of that will be available from the website. And tonight on the broadcast, we'll continue dipping into some of these DVDs just to highlight some of the work that's there. And next up, after the break, we're going to be listening to an, a video that uh, was really the forerunner to this Last Word DVD video, uh, video series. People might know my Last Word commentary series, which has become quite popular and which I'm still working on the next season. There's, uh, I've already done the first video of the next season. There's more to come. But the first season is available here on this DVD. But the real beginnings of this idea for this commentary series started way back in 2009 when, in fact, I started a... I did a video called A Message to the Environmental Movement. And that was just at the time that Climategate was breaking and the 
the understanding was starting to shift in a significant way among the general public about the global warming hypothesis. And I used that opportunity to try to put together the most cogent message I could about what ClimateGate represented and the opportunity it represented for a real environmental movement to concentrate on real environmental problems. And so we're going to listen to that after the break. That, as I say, was really the genesis of this Last Word commentary series and still a piece of work that I'm quite proud of, even after ClimateGate has been spun away and has basically been uh, made into something that it's not. It's been uh, spun away and, and swept under the rug by basically various whitewash commissions, and there's a lot of work to go into explicating each of the whitewash commissions and who is behind them and why they're not valid, But which I've done elsewhere, by the way, if in case you're interested. But I still think that this video is important, and it's part of the 2009 Video Archive DVD. Then, after the next break, we're going to take uh, we're going to take a listen to an, one of my podcast episodes. In fact, episode 105, "The Smart Grid Cometh." Obviously, a topic that's still very relevant today, just as relevant as when I first put it out almost three years ago. And that uh, that episode, we're going to listen to just an 18-minute segment of it. But of course, the episode itself is over an hour long. So stay tuned right there. We have much more material coming at you fast and furious after this break. Once again, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. We'll be right back. The country was weary and worn. Yeah, W was Dick's little Cheney. And the Constitution was torn. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I come here today with a message for you. You the environmentalists, you the activists, you the campaigners, you who have watched with growing concern the ways in which the world around us has been ravaged in the pursuit of the almighty dollar, you who are concerned with the state of the planet that we are leaving for our children and our grandchildren and those generations yet unborn. This is not a message of divisiveness, but cooperation. This is a message of hope and empowerment, but it requires us to look at a hard and uncomfortable truth. Your movement has been usurped by the very same financial interests you thought you were fighting against. You have suspected as much for years. You watched at first with hope and excitement as your movement, your cause, your message began to be spread, as it was taken up by the media and given attention, as conferences were organized and as the ideas you had struggled so long and hard to be heard were talked about nationally, then internationally. You watched with growing unease as the message was simplified, First it became a slogan, then it became a brand. Soon it was nothing more than a label, and it became attached to products. The ideas you had once fought for were now being sold back to you for profit. You watched with growing unease as the message became parroted, not argued, worn like a fashion rather than something that came from the conviction of understanding. You disagreed when the slogans and then the science were dumbed down, when carbon dioxide became the focus and CO2 was taken up as a political cause. Soon it was the only cause. You knew that Al Gore was not a scientist, that his evidence was factually incorrect, that the movement was being taken over by a cause that was not your own, one that relied on beliefs you did not share to propose a solution you did not want. It began to reach a breaking point when you saw that the solutions being proposed were not solutions at all, when they began to propose new taxes and new markets that would only serve to line their own pockets. You knew something was wrong when you saw them argue for a cap-and-trade scheme proposed by Ken Lay, when you saw Goldman Sachs position itself to ride the carbon trading bubble, when the whole thrust of the movement became ways to make money, or spend money, or raise money from this panic. Your movement had been hijacked. 
The realization came the first time you read the Club of Rome's 1991 book, The First Global Revolution, which says, In searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. And when you looked at the Club of Rome's elite member roster, and when you learned about eugenics and the Rockefeller ties to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute and the practice of crypto-eugenics and the rise of overpopulation fear-mongering and the call by elitist after elitist after elitist to cull the world population. Still, you wanted to believe that there was some basis of truth, something real and valuable in the single-minded obsession of this hijacked environmental movement with man-made global warming. Now, in November 2009, the last traces of doubt have been removed. Last week, an insider leaked internal documents and emails from the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia and exposed the lies, manipulation, and fraud behind the studies that supposedly show 0.6 degrees Celsius of warming over the last 130 years, and the hockey stick graph that supposedly shows unprecedented warming in our times. We now note that these scientists wrote programming notes in the source code of their own climate models, admitting that results were being manually adjusted. We now know that values were being adjusted to conform to scientists' wishes, not, rea- not reality. We now know that the peer review process itself was being perverted to exclude those scientists whose work criticized their findings. We now know that these scientists privately expressed doubts about the science that they publicly claimed to be settled. We now know, in short, that they were lying. It is unknown as yet what the fallout will be from all of this, but it is evident that the fallout will be substantial. With this crisis, however, comes an opportunity. An opportunity to recapture the movement that the financiers have stolen from the people. Together, we can demand a full and independent investigation into all of the researchers whose work was implicated in the CRU affair. We can demand a full re-evaluation of all those studies whose conclusions have been thrown into question by these revelations, and all of the public policy that has been based on those studies. We can establish new standards of transparency for scientists whose work is taxpayer-funded and or whose work affects public policy, so that everyone has full and equal access to the data used to calculate results and all of the source code used in all of the programs used to model that data. In other words, we can reaffirm that no cause is worth supporting that requires deception for its propagation. Even more importantly, we can take back the environmental movement. We can begin to concentrate on the serious questions that need to be asked about the genetic engineering technology whereby hybrid organisms and new, never-before-seen proteins that are being released into the biosphere in a giant, uncontrolled experiment threatens the very genome of life on this planet. We can look into environmental causes of the explosion in cancer and the staggering drops in fertility over the last 50 years, including the BPA in our plastics and the anti-androgens in the water. We can examine regulatory agencies that are controlled by the very corporations they are supposedly watching over. We can begin focusing on depleted uranium and the dumping of toxic waste into the rivers and all of the issues that we once knew were part of the real environmental movement. Or we can, as some have, descend into petty partisan politics. We can decide that lies are okay if they support our side. We can defend the reprehensible actions of the CRU researchers and rally around the green flag that has long since been captured by the enemy. It's a simple decision to make, but one that we must make quickly before the argument can be spun away and environmentalism can go back to business as usual. 
We are at a crossroads of history, and make no mistake, history will be the final judge of our actions. So I leave you today with a simple question. Which side of history do you want to be on? For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. Welcome, my friends, to episode 103 of the Corbett Report. The smart grid cometh. Many people might have thought it was just a figure of speech when the illustrious Nobel laureate and oft lauded president of the world uttered these remarks at a campaign rally in Rosenberg, Oregon, in 2008. But keep in mind, you're right. We can't tell them don't grow. We can't. Uh, drive our SUVs and you know eat as much as we want and keep our homes on you know 72 degrees at all times and、uh, whether we're living in a desert or we're living in the tundra and and then just expect that every other country is going to say okay you know you guys go ahead and keep on using 25 percent of the world's energy even though you only account for three percent of the population and we'll we'll be fine don't worry about us. That that that's not that's not leadership. Rest assured, however, that that was not merely a figure of speech, or not merely something rattled off as a vague campaign promise. No, in fact, that is a very real reality, which in fact had become a reality even before those words were even uttered by the dear leader, Mr. Obama. In fact, even in January of 2008, we had articles like this one from YouCan.org. California Energy Commission wants to give government control over your thermostat during emergency events. Quote, California utilities would control the temperature of new homes and commercial buildings in emergencies with a radio-controlled thermostat under a proposed state update to building energy efficiency standards. Customers could not override the, th- the thermostats during emergency events, according to the proposal, part of a 236-page revision to building standards. The document is scheduled to be considered by the California Energy Commission, a state agency, on January 30th. The description does not provide any exception for health or safety concerns. It also does not define what are emergency events. End quote. Now, whereas that may have seemed like Orwellian science fiction to most people in January of 2008, by now I think most people are beginning to understand that that is really only the tip of the iceberg. And in fact, under proposed new systems and new infrastructure, which is being developed at the moment, the radio-controlled thermostats will not, in fact, even be necessary, because in fact. All electricity and all electrical devices will one day be controllable from a central command location. Of course, one aspect of what I'm talking about is commonly referred to as the smart grid, and the term smart grid, of course, generally refers to the smart power grid or an electrical delivery supply grid, which will be able to route power throughout the energy grid to respond to supply and demand concerns and other 
problems faced by energy grids of the old-fashioned sort. Of course, generally, when you hear about the smart grid, it will be in glowing, wonderful, receptive terms, and will concentrate on the wonderful selling points of the smart grid, and it will sound something like this. Well, I think of the smart grid as a new power system that allows the customer to make smart and wise energy choices. And I divide that into five categories. The first category is simply there's a new meter on your house, so instead of having to send a person out there to read it, the meter reads itself by sending the data electronically to the grid. The second benefit is the ability to control end uses that cause peaking conditions to arise, like, for example, air conditioning on a hot summer day. That's called demand response, and that's the second category of benefit. The third category of benefit is energy efficiency. And so by informing customers about how much they're using at what time of day and what their cost is going to be through like an in-home display device, we influence energy consumption. The fourth major benefit is allowing the customer to generate their own power through, for example, photovoltaics on the roof or through a battery storage system. Sometimes this is called distributed generation. And, and connecting the customer's generation with the grid in a seamless, integrated fashion allowing smooth flow in both directions. And the last category is the ability to charge the new generation of cars that will either be hybrid electric cars, in other words, gasoline as well as electric batteries, or just pure electrics. How big will these benefits be? I think you, you've done the study kind of trying to calculate the monetary benefits of smart grids in the U.S. over the next 40 years or so. If you take all of these different benefits that I have been describing, and you evaluate them year by year over the next 40 years, the, the estimate that we have developed uh, for the United States uh, is some, something, let's say, over $500 billion in present value terms over the 40-year horizon. That, of course, was Ahmed Faruqi, interviewed on The Economist podcast about the smart grid. And Ahmed Faruqi was, of course, an analyst for a consulting firm, and obviously someone with an agenda to sell to the listeners. So the glowing description of the wonderful benefits of the smart grid should be taken with a hefty grain of salt. After all, do we really need to be reminded what happens when we deliver the energy industry and even the way that energy is delivered into our homes in the hands of a few benevolent multinational corporations who are kept on a short leash by the ever-attentive governmental regulators. Recently, audio tapes of the Enron traders were discovered. What do you want to call this project? Uh, I have a catchy name for that. <laughs> How about, you know, something friendly like Death Star? <laughs> the tapes revealed Enron's contempt for any values except one, making money. The regulatory is all in a big concern about is we're wheeling power out of California. He just steals money from California to the tune of a million. Can we rephrase that? Okay. He arbitrages the California market to the tune of a million bucks or two a day. <laughs> An arbitrage opportunity has been defined to me as any opportunity to make abnormal profit. So an abnormal profit would be. Um, returns above and beyond the norm. I was told that a good trader is a creative trader. 
And a creative trader is a trader that can find arbitrage opportunities. One of those opportunities was called ricochet. I'll see you guys. I'm taking mine to the desert. In the midst of the energy shortages, Enron traders started to export power out of the state. When prices soared, they brought it back in. So we fucking export like a motherfucker. You're getting rich. Trying to. Traders would stay after a 12-hour shift and pour over maps of the Western energy grid. What are the permutations and combinations of ways to move power around the West? And I think that that's something that Enron knew better than any other energy marketer in the country, period. We know all of the California imports. We know all of the California load. They're getting pretty spoiled, don't some money. You said you're getting a little scared or making a little too much, and I, I tend to agree with you. <laughs> These are two traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S. This is what they say. What we did was overbook the transmission line we had the rights on and said to California Utilities, if you want to use the line, pay us. By the time they agreed to meet our price, rolling blackouts had already hit California, and the price for electricity went through the roof. Did you have any knowledge that this was happening? The only, the only thing that I'm aware of, Senator, is there was a, uh, there was a difference of opinion on the rules of the independent system operator. It was just set up. The rules weren't quite, quite clear. We have traders here from Enron who were saying they did something wrong, but you don't see anything wrong. I have one last question, and then I am done. Traders soon discovered that by shutting down power plants, they could create artificial shortages that would push prices even higher. Hey, uh, this is David up at Enron. Uh-huh. There's not much uh, demand for power at all. If we shut it down, could you bring it back up in three or four hours? Oh, yeah. Why don't you just go ahead and shut her down then, if that's okay? I want you guys to get a little creative okay. and come up with a reason to go down. Like a forced outage type thing. Right. Those guys, at the flip of a switch, could just yank the California economy on its leash whenever they wanted to. And they did it, and they did it, and they did it, and they made so much money. There would be ample supply available at the right fucking price. Oh, sure there would. It wasn't just Enron. Every company traded according to the, to the rules that California put up there. And we're the future of Enron. And we're fucking making half a billion dollars for Enron. Can you believe that? Yeah. We'll definitely retire by we're 30. And we're talking about a commodity that normally trades in the 35 to $45 range. High prices are when it gets in the 50s for $1,000. Prices aren't going to stay at 1000 bucks forever. If we tell the weak people in the market, you know, get rid of them. And you know what? The people who are strong stick around it. The Enron traders never seem to step back and say, wait, is what we're doing ethical? Is it in our best long-term interests? Does it help us if we totally rape California? Does that advance our goals of nationwide deregulation? Instead, they sought out every, every loophole they could in order to profit from California's misery. No, I dare say we don't need to be reminded of what happens when big business gets in bed with big government to create big problems which benefit them in a big way at the expense of little old you and me. Because, of course, always, 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 the centralization of control in the hands of multinational corporations who are paying off the regulators who are supposedly keeping an eye on them will always inevitably and without fail end up 
in billions of dollars for the big boys and nothing for you and I. And this smart grid technology will be no different. But first, perhaps it's important to get a handle on the smart technologies which are coming into play and how they will affect you and me. Because rest assured, the smart power grid is only one very, very small facet of a much, much wider campaign to introduce radically different technologies, which of course will all be artificially intelligent and will help us in our day-to-day tasks to create a better world. But don't take my word for it. Take IBM's. We can build a smarter planet. Smarter towns. Smarter cities. Smarter government. Smarter retail. Smarter shipping. Smarter airports. Smarter food supplies. Smarter grocery stores. Trains. Cars. Smarter streets. Smarter classrooms. We need smarter people. Really smart. Smarter hospitals. Smarter energy grid. Connect them all together. And what do you got? Happier people. That's what I'm working on. That's what I'm working on. I'm an IBMer. I'm an IBMer. I'm an IBMer. Let's build. Let's build. Let's build a smarter planet. Yes, that's right. We're certainly not simply talking about smart energy grids. We're also talking about smart traffic grids and smart public safety systems and smart government and smart education and smart health technologies and all sorts of other smart solutions that are being proposed by the very same IBM that, as Edwin Black ably demonstrated in his seminal work, IBM and the Holocaust pioneered the racial census that the Nazis used to catalog the Jews and other undesirables in the Holocaust, and then provided and leased and maintained the punch card systems which were used to mechanize and automate that selfsame Holocaust. And yes, that's the same IBM that continues to win the rights to conduct the census in the U.S. and other countries, And yes, this is the same company that's partnering with National Geographic for the Genographic Project, whereby people will lovingly put the cotton swabs in their mouth and hand over their DNA as part of a scientific study to find out more about you. For wonderful, loving ends, of course, and it's something that you should line up and get on board for, right? Well, perhaps not. But as I suspect you've already gathered, what we're dealing with here is much, much, much more than just smart energy grids. We're talking about something called smart technology, which is about to take over every facet of our lives with AI technologies, which will revolutionize our world. And yes, this is coming about due to large corporations with very dark histories and ulterior motives. Let's start delving into some of the aspects and ramifications of what it is we're dealing with with these smart technologies. This week, I had the chance to talk to Jordan Kaufman of CorruptionRadio.com and someone who's been researching the IBM Smarter Planet campaign and some of the smart technologies which are being introduced around us. So I would recommend listeners go to CorbettReport.com and take a listen to my recent interview with Jordan in its entirety. Or if you prefer, you can go and read the transcript of this interview in the article section of CorbettReport.com, which was provided by the InfoWars Wiki, and which, again, is greatly appreciated. But right now, let's listen to a short clip from that very fascinating conversation, where we start by talking about the IBM project to develop a smart traffic grid in Stockholm, Sweden. 
they're lobbying uh, nations around the world to put in uh, various different systems of organization. Um, like, uh, for example, I don't know which pieces you're gonna, you really want to get into or cover, but I'll just mention one of them for now is their license plate recognition software that's being, uh, that's being used in Sweden. And what's interesting about this is that they have the precision down so well, where basically the point of the system is to uh, recognize every car that comes in and out of Sweden. Uh, and uh, they do this by not enforcing people to carry a transponder, but with a set of video cameras that recognize the license plate uh, with stunning accuracy and can track out of 500,000 cars that pass the, the camera's view, they only miss about three or four uh, cars. They miss identifying them. So they identify the car, and then their car is charged based on the time of day they're traveling to avoid uh, peak traffic uh, time periods. They, there's a graduated scale for when, when, what they charge you, and at the end of the month, you get a bill. And that, that's just kind of one example. And, of course, the stated goal of it is to reduce traffic, uh, which it is effective in doing, and um, but but it, it is a little disconcerting when you when you compare it with the other aspects that are of what they're doing right now, and of course the historical context. Exactly, it's like one finding one piece of a jigsaw puzzle, and you don't quite know what that piece does until you see the other pieces. But just on that uh, Swedish uh, license plate uh, scanning system, uh, I, one of the interesting points that struck me when I was listening to your podcast was that apparently, I guess the Swedish government had hired a team of lawyers to deal with complaints about this when they were first instituting it, but they didn't quite get the uh, flood of complaints they were expecting. Right, you know, it's interesting. There was only uh, like five or six people that. Um, that objected and uh, that that have tried to appeal because those lawyers were meant for appeals, um, and they, there was really no reason to hire forty lawyers to handle five appeals, um, and uh, and so they they were really taken aback by that. And not only that, IBM also hired um, part of the contract that they sold to Sweden include one of the. In other words, it's not just a lump sum contract, right? They have to itemize everything. One of the items was for a call center to deal with complaints in addition to the appeals. And uh, the calls never came. I mean, there was, you know, the, there, was, there was obviously no reason to even have such a department. Bring home my girls and boys in Iraq and Afghanistan. Bring If you're looking for a change, you might try another place Cause the candidates you're looking at are basically the same There's one on the left and one on the right Only difference the direction they are facing when they lie It's a great big game and you are the pawn Willing Alright friends, welcome back to the program, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we've been going through the new multi-pack DVD and Last Word DVD, which are now available, all five of the Corbett Report DVDs, in one set, 7,500 Japanese yen for subscribers. That will be in your e-newsletter, which goes out tomorrow, Saturday, and it will also contain a subscriber-only video of myself, Niall Bowie, and Richard Gage going around Kuala Lumpur. Just a little bit of fun, and it will also have my editorial for the International Forecaster. So once again, if you're not signed up as a subscriber to the e-newsletter, I suggest you do so, as you can get that big discount. Otherwise, you can still get these DVDs for 10,000 Japanese yen. 
And on that note, we're going to end it here today, but I'm going to put it off on a high note. Uh, tonight, we're going to end it with another video from the 2009 video archive. This one, The Sunny Climbs of Western Japan, just a video compilation of uh, scenes from Japan that I put together here in, uh, in Japan uh, in 2009. So if you're listening on radio, why not tune in on video at youtube.com slash Corbett Report or at CorbettReport.com so you can watch these videos. And on that note, see you next week.